later in Macro Sunday. Yeah. So far, we only have like forward-looking evidence of some soft uh, signs of softening, but um, uh, whether it, it will arrive in time for the ECB to cut rates in, in, during the spring is is, is a tricky uh, yes, discussion. Yes, and, and again, politically speaking, the, the crisis awareness in most European countries is still centered around cost of living. Yeah. It's not centered around recession. There's not much talk about recession. A little bit more in Germany. You're listening to Macro Sunday, hosted by Andreas Steno. Happy Sunday, everyone, and welcome to the Macro Sunday podcast. I'm Andreas Steno, founder of Steno Research. And uh, as per usual, I'm joined by you, Mikkel Rosenwald, our head of geopolitics here at Steno Research. Welcome to you. Great to be here. Inflation is back. Uh, I think that's basically <laughs> the center of attention uh, after a week of hot inflation prints out of the US. We will discuss this resurgence of US inflation over the course of the next 45 minutes. And in roughly 10 minutes time, uh, we're joined by Freya Biemisch, um, the chief economist of TS Lombard, to discuss both Bank of Japan and the developments in China. So we have an action-packed program for you this Sunday. Mikkel, inflation is back. Um, we saw a very, very hot PPI report on Friday afternoon, 0.6% on the month in call terms. We saw a, um, a hot CPI report early in the week, 0.4% month on month in, uh, in call terms as well a sharp acceleration relative to what we've seen, uh, for example, over the autumn in uh, 2023. This is a major headache for the Federal Reserve. And one could argue that this is the first sign that the rising freight rates that we've seen over the past couple of months um, is basically passing through to both input and output prices. That's at least one explanation. Uh, but it also seems like the wage pressure is still very, very sticky in the U.S. economy. So, Mikkel, let's start with the sort of brief top-down status on the Red Sea developments and the potential for a truce in Gaza. So I think what you just laid out there is probably the positive view on this. Uh, uh, if this is the uh, spillover from the Red Sea crisis, uh, uh, it's good to have that out of the way. I'm not sure of that. Yeah. I still believe that that, that may be a few weeks away, um, especially since the crisis is still ongoing. We have a ship headed for, for India last, uh, last night being attacked. And... Um, I was very. Uh, I laid out a very positive uh, prognosis for the for the peace process. I think we're going to see some sort of ceasefire within February. Maybe too positive, uh, but I think the pressure is on there. Um, will that directly solve the Red Sea crisis? I think so. Actually, yeah. <laughs> I think the Houthis might scale down their attacks at least uh, if there is a ceasefire. This the the the. the the Israel-Hamas war was the case of Billy for, uh, for the Houthis to start attacking. So I'm still expecting that, but but it is still a big if because we have some interesting incentives regarding, uh, especially Netanyahu in Israel, who basically knows that once the war ends, his political career ends. So is he incentivized to to strike a peace deal? Uh, can he withstand the pressure from outside to strike a peace deal? We'll have to see. Um, over the past week, um, Bibi Netanyahu basically refused yeah. the ceasefire. So what do you read out of his comments here and his, his stance currently? I think he's, he's 
there are two possible explanations. One is that this is a negotiation tactic. Yeah. I'm, I'm probably leaning that way, uh, that he's refusing everything that's on the table and not. Uh, I'm, I'm leaving the table, and then you can come back in a few days with a clean slate. Uh, the second thing, and, and, and they could be, be happening simultaneously, is, of course, the Netanyahu is trying to establish some sort of situation on the ground that he can sell to the Israeli electorate as a win, as a mm-hmm. victory. Um would that involve pushing several hundred thousand Palestinians into Egypt as refugees? I don't know. We we, we don't really know what the target is because the, there's no really no way to, to to measure if Hamas has been destroyed. But maybe he can create some scenario where Israel has swept the Gaza Strip and, and, and present that as a victory. Yeah. And Mikkel, this ongoing malaise in the Red Sea uh, due to troubles in, in the Middle East overall um, could be one explanation behind the resurgence of inflation. Uh, over the past week, we wrote an article called there is no chance of inflation returning to 2% in the US in this yeah. cycle. Um, slightly cocky headline, uh, but um, the point is that forward-looking indicators of ours are now pointing towards a continuation of the reacceleration in inflation through spring. Um, first of all, the pass-through from freight rates. Second, the compensation plans um, among SMEs in the U.S. are also on the rise. Uh, basically, they expect to hike uh, their their wages. As a consequence of high wages, they also expect to hike prices to sort of um, yeah cover the ground. You could say uh, those exact same companies. And furthermore, we actually have growth in various money measures in the U.S. again now. Dollar liquidity is arriving due to the depletion of the overnight reverse repo facility and all of that. I mean, it's it's, it's actually tricky to find an inflation indicator pointing down. Absolutely. Um, and I think I said last week uh, that it will be tricky for the Fed to cut at all. Uh, I know that our guest Freya Bimish is of another view. Um I have to admit that the Fed seems very hellbent uh, on this minor uh, adjustment uh, to to um, to interest rates that they've already sort of uh, predicted or forecasted for this year in the dot plot. Um, but in any case, it doesn't look like a a long and um, and large cutting cycle. This one, uh, given what we see in inflation right now. Yeah, you want to add something? No, just basically. I mean, we've we've been talking a lot about the second hump in inflation, and and uh, I think many of us expected that to come or to be triggered by a lowering of rates. Um, but but we haven't really seen the Fed move towards combating a recession yet. There there there's no narrative. No no no. There is no recession. There's no narrative around a recession. So 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 the question is. Uh, Will the narrative instead switch to a second inflation crisis politically? And if that's the focus, then it's going to be a very hard sell for the Fed to to lower interest rates, of course, yeah. uh, politically as well. Indeed, it it will. Um, speaking of inflation, um, Isabel Schnabel, um, typically the guiding star of the uh, committee in the European Central Bank, she's been vocal over the past week, uh, first of all, on productivity. Um, she laments the lack of productivity growth in the eurozone and, and finds it to be a reason for for eurozone companies to uh, to increase prices when wages go up um and wages are pretty hot still in the eurozone uh your team Mikkel, wrote yeah. um, an article on um, on the eurozone wage developments and the upcoming negotiations through spring here um in short um wages are still high absolutely I mean, most uh or 
many European countries are above the three percent threshold. That's sort of the the the, the accepted uh, wage growth to 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 maintain inflation at the two percent level. Uh, and I think basically a lot of the trade unions and a lot of the the, the bargaining parties are are uh, believe that they're still playing catch up uh, to to the inflation pressure from the past one to two years. So that's basically what we're seeing right now. The thing is, is that it's not a very healthy combination to have low productivity growth, even recession, technical recession yeah. in some countries, and then to, to, to add to wage, uh, to, 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 to wage growth. That's not a very healthy combination. And, and, and it, 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 it could be, could be critical for, for especially some of the larger in, or more industrial uh, heavy European nations. Yeah. If we look at the German wage cycle, um, obviously one of the, most important wage cycles to to monitor for the European Central Bank. Um, in sharp contrast to what we see in the US, we actually have forward-looking indicators pointing south. Mm. Um, and I'm personally not overly convinced that the trade unions in Germany um, will will have a, a strong uh, position no. ahead of these um, uh, spring negotiations. Point being here that it is easier to negotiate a higher wage growth when the economy is firing on all cylinders and the German economy is certainly not. Um, why the US wage pressure seems stickier than it does in Germany to me. But it, I mean, we still, we still need the confirmation. Yeah. So far, we only have like forward looking evidence of some soft uh, signs of softening, but um, uh, whether it, it will arrive in time for the ECB to cut rates in, in during the spring is, is, is a tricky uh, Yes, and, and again, politically speaking, the, the crisis awareness in most European countries is still centered around cost of living. Yeah. It's not centered around recession. There's not much talk about recession. A little bit more in Germany, uh, obviously, but 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 the cost is still very much around uh, groceries have gotten more expensive. We need to catch up to that rather than our industries are basically not making any money. <laughs> and that's, uh, yeah, that's that, that's sort of a duality that's going to be interesting for the coming, coming quarters. Yeah, and Schnabel, the guiding star of the ECB, basically pivoted on the back of a dovish pivot in, in December uh, over the past week here, um, probably due to high wage growth and um, and the January HICP inflation report that didn't really rhyme with the disinflation trend. So February inflation is make or break um, for the April uh, cut from uh, from the ECB. Our nowcast is very soft. Uh, if you want to check out our nowcasting on your inflation, um, then uh, go visit our, our webpage, stenoresearch.com. We're currently at 0.18% month on month in the headline HICP, which is soft, uh, especially relative to the 0.83 month on month inflation in February last year. So we will have a, a large slide in, in year over year inflation in case we are right. Uh, all the details on the nowcasting are found on stenoresearch.com. Mikkel, it's time to introduce our guest of the week, Freya Beamish. Um, Freya is the chief economist of T.S. Lombard. Um, she's an avid follower of Chinese and Japanese trends. And um, I think it's safe to say that she's not positive on the Chinese outlook, but structurally, she finds a very compelling case in Japan. And um, as far as I'm concerned, Freya is from Scotland. Uh, so I, I wanted to find a soundbite to introduce her uh, by uh, from a Scottish band. And um, therefore, here's Simple Minds, Don't You. Won't you 
Now my great pleasure to introduce Freya Beamish of T.S. Lombard, the chief economist of T.S. Lombard, to the Macro Sunday podcast. It's great to have you here, Freya. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, that's a pleasure. Freya, um, we've been hosting your colleague, Dario Perkins, a couple of times on the podcast here. And uh, we always love his takes on, uh, on global central banks. And he told us that you were very keen on discussing the Asian developments with us. And... Um, we frankly haven't covered Bank of Japan and the developments in China um, to any major extent over the past couple of weeks here in the podcast. But beneath the surface, a lot of stuff is happening out there. So if we start with the um, developments in Japan, I think it was last week, um, the deputy governor of the Bank of Japan, Ushida, basically told us not to expect rapid moves once Bank of Japan actually gets going in the rate hiking cycle. It caused a lot of debate, but it seems like the market pricing is still sort of leaning towards rate hikes from Bank of Japan. So what do you make of all of the debates around Japan at this juncture, Freya? Yeah, so so clearly with, with the latest data, the momentum in, in Japan is, is not really there. Um, but again, I think this speaks to there being the sort of multiple cycles this is something that, that Dario probably has, has spoken with you guys about um, previously. There being multiple cycles globally and, and, and also, of course, that applies to Japan as well. Um, so you've got the, the, the reopening surge, which is bigger or smaller in different countries. Um, and then you've got the kind of a slowdown off of that. Uh, and Japan is, is still sort of in that slowdown phase. Um, I think what, what really matters with regards to um, Bank of Japan policy going forwards is is the underlying shifts and whether something is is changing with the with the structure of the economy, um, and and I think um, trepidatiously because this has been going on for a long time, I, I do actually see some things changing in in the structure of the Japanese economy. Mm. So when we think about um, Bank of Japan policy, we have to think of sort of two pillars. We have to think of of the effort to minimize financial distortions uh, in the in the Japanese economy, and that is the sort of the primary thrust of trying to to get rid of negative interest rates to try to to loosen the the yield curve control. So as long as everything else is is kind of okay, then they'll continue to to, to do that. Uh, and I think that's where we're at at the moment in terms of the, the the changes that have been made so far, and even just that initial stage of getting rid of negative interest rates. And that doesn't really sort of derail the other pillar of Bank of Japan policy, which is is the the attempt to engineer this virtuous cycle between private consumption and and and, and capex and and get the domestic economy really back online uh, and looking at sort of reflation. That that initial shift away from um, financial distortions and removing those kind of most horrible parts of of Bank of Japan policy. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't really curtail. I don't think, and I, I don't think the Bank of Japan sees it as curtailing um, the, the the move towards um, <clears throat> towards a uh, that virtuous cycle and the kind of the the, the second goal of, of monetary policy. 
Um, and that's that's something that has been sort of building up in the in the Bank of Japan literature for a while. Uh, quite a few years ago now, they published these idea these ideas of about the reversal rate and how you know negative rates are not actually helping anymore. Um, and and so getting rid of them doesn't really kind of um, damage the, the the growth prospects. Unless, of course, you get some crazy unwind of the carry trade, and then then you're in a different type of a, of a story. So they have to be careful. They have to sort of uh, they have to continue to to have these kind of dovish comments coming out. Um, but I think, broadly speaking, getting rid of those distortionary aspects is is paramount to them. Um, and then, kind of moving beyond that, it comes down to the question of are things really changing? And right now is the time when we'll start to see some evidence. To the to the pro or the or or, to, or against with regards to whether those changes are coming through. Looking at the the, the wage bargaining um, this uh, this time of year, um, and and kind of cutting a long story short, and happy to go into the details. But at this stage, uh, it does seem as though the barriers to, to 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 inflation, to wage inflation in Japan, they're not gone, but I would say they're lower than they have been historically. Mm. If we look at the Bank of Japan policy in 2023, they obviously moved the needle on the yield curve control uh, more than a couple of times, causing a bit of volatility in the JGB market along the way. If we look at the front end of the yield curve, the decision-making ahead for the Bank of Japan, what's the feasible game plan for Bank of Japan if they actually want to move the front end out of negative territory here? Well, at the moment, markets are expecting around um, April, uh, I think last time I checked, which was this morning. So hopefully nothing's moved since then. Um, and and at the moment, it seems as though people think still that they can kind of gradually shift uh, shift shift the, the, the short end of the curve higher over the course of this year, but only in tiny baby steps. And I think that's that's probably probably right. Um, we have to look at uh, the the wage growth. And we have to look at what's going to be going on in the Fed, which we can, which I'm happy to sort of talk about um, uh, as well. Um, cutting a long story short on the, the global backdrop, um, which is obviously what what is is going to be the, the the channel for 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 the Bank of Japan to um, to make these moves. Um, we do see the the Fed as being able to to cut rates. Um, I think markets. Probably got a clearly kind of got ahead of themselves a little bit, uh, both on the Fed and and kind of globally for developed markets. Um, but we do still see the Fed being able to to, to cut rates, um, and we do still see uh, the, the the potential for wage growth to come through in in Japan. Um, and that, you know, as I said, right now this is the this is the the point in time where we'll start to get evidence to the to the to the pro or against um, with regards to that. And I think when I said that that barriers to um, to wage growth are, are lower. What I'm really talking about here is, is partly um, a global shift towards higher wage inflation in developed markets. Um, and Japan is a part of that. And that's largely because of the retreat of, of China um, and, and kind of deep globalization and, and probably China reaching its, its, uh, its ceiling with regards to rapid increases in unit labor costs. And that really lifts the lid off of developed market wage growth um, for, for all developed markets, but that Japan is a part of that as well. But then with Japan, there's always these sort of idiosyncratic um, elements because of, of it, it just being quite a different economy. Um, and those those particular idiosyncrasies, which have, have led to uh, disinflation and even kind of deflation, which is a very rare thing globally in, in wages, 
um, I think those barriers to, to, to reflation are, are lower, particularly uh, the baby boomers have retired um, and particularly women have been brought into the into the into the labor market. Um, and, and the baby boomers retiring is is particularly in the Japanese case, a, a very important uh, milestone because of the sort of quasi feudal nature of the labor market in Japan. If you have a system of seniority wages um, and, and the, the working age population is contracting, then the sort of the reflationary hope is that that leads to uh, further wage growth. Um, or it stimulates wage growth. And that didn't happen in Japan, partly because of you know China entering onto the scene at the same time when that was supposed to be generating wage growth in Japan, partly because of deleveraging, but also partly because there's this massive surplus of, of people, of managers and middle managers, which constrains wage growth all the way down the chain, even for those cohorts that are in contraction, just because of that kind of quasi-feudal nature of the, of the labor market. So that's passed. Um, there is an echo boom generation, but it's smaller than the first. So lower, lower hurdles, but still some hurdles there. And then the women that have been sort of sitting on the sidelines have been pulled into the labor market. So there's no longer a sort of an internal China, uh, internal China within Japan of kind of women that are sitting outside of the labor market because they've now been pulled into the labor market. And if we get to the stage where there is this global higher pressure developed market um, dynamic, then policy, then um, then then firms, then then corporations, then managers will be looking for productivity gains, and that's an obvious place within Japan um, to 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 try to to elevate uh, wage growth uh, on the back of productivity growth. Um, but because these women are now employed, but they're very underemployed, and so there's there's the potential there to raise their uh, their, their productivity growth. Uh, and that could be some way in which wage growth becomes more sort of self-sustaining within within Japan. So that's a hugely rosy, rosy picture. And I can't believe I'm really painting that that picture about Japan. Um, but that's that's the sort of the, the, the bullish case with regards to to Japanese reflation, which clearly at the moment is not coming through in the in the spending data in Japan. But that could be a little bit of a mirage just as a result of the of the sort of the, the multiple cycles that are running at the moment with the new drivers not really being online yet and the old drivers coming offline and then you're in this kind of limbo situation which which does tend to sort of lower the the expectations with regards to uh to bank of japan hikes but if something is really changing under the surface and if there is that kind of hope there and optimism within the bank of japan then potentially uh, the the path towards rate hikes remains open mm. If we look at the current leadership of the uh, Bank of Japan, uh, Deputy Governor Ushida was was obviously one of the architects behind the yield curve control and the negative interest rate policy of the Kuroda era. Now that we have uh, Ueda uh, behind the steering wheel at the Bank of Japan, to which extent do you get the feeling that they actually share your sentiment that something could be changing beneath the surface in Japan here? Yeah, I, I honestly I do get that um, mm. that feeling. Obviously, they're 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 trepidatious, uh, and these are people that have you know lived through because you know they're, they're they're not young, right? So they've lived through that entire process. They haven't just sort of like looked at the charts and and kind of worked things out. They've actually lived through that, and so like the actual the actual move to towards kind of saying okay, well maybe something has changed is even more difficult for 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 them to see because and similarly for for, for investors that have been sort of carried out by um by by the so-called widowmaker a slightly un, un PC widowmaker trade um for for years and years it's it's difficult to to get behind that that shift but in the context of the this kind of higher pressure 
um, global economy from a developed market perspective uh, forecast that we have for, for the secular term and with the context of those kind of domestic barriers being being lower. Um, I mean, this is something that we talk about with with, with the Bank of Japan, that that, that potential is, is there um, and they don't sort of want to stand in the way of it. When we look at the relationship between Fed policy and Bank of Japan policy, I think one of the interesting questions right now is whether the Bank of Japan would prefer a rate cutting cycle commencing from the Federal Reserve uh, already during the spring or not. If we look at the most recent price trends, we've obviously seen a repricing of the dollar versus the yen after the pushback um, against rate cut expectations in the US. Do you think a weaker yen would actually allow Bank of Japan to move, move out of negative uh, interest rate policy territory or would they prefer a rate cutting cycle commencing from the Federal Reserve? Yeah, they're, they're slightly at odds at the short end of the curve versus the the, mm. the long end of the curve. Like the the short the short end of the curve, they 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 sort of need that interest differential to sort of move in in their direction, so that there's not such an un, a risk of that unwinding of the of the carry trade, which we know when these things unwind, they tend to unwind very rapidly, and they don't want to to um they don't want to shock old Mrs. Watanabe, who's probably getting quite old at this stage in the game. You don't want to you don't want to send tremors through that part of the part of the market um so from that perspective uh having having the fed coming back into line with them is is uh is 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 an optimistic thing um but from the perspective of of sort of the yield curve control um allowing greater flexibility as they already sort of have have done um that more recessionary outlook was almost sort of helpful because it brought yields back down towards um, towards uh, the the Japanese side, um, allowing them to have kind of less of a, an updraft uh, when they were trying to make those 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 increases in in flexibility at the other end of the curve. Mm. Um, but sort of broadly speaking, I do think the Fed will be will be able to to cut this year, um, and that's that's. You might find that strange in the context of some of the analysis that we've been doing with regards to, to sort of looking at velocity and recognizing that velocity is still below trend um, and, and therefore realizing in the U.S. economy that there's still uh, a lot of scope for um, for the U.S. economy to run kind of resilient demand, which is exactly what we're, we're seeing. And and, um, and so in that context, you might think, oh, well, they, how are they going to be able to cut rates? But I, I do, I do sort of buy into, if not exactly in the way that the Fed is is um, is, is 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 playing it. Um, I do sort of buy into the the notion that this is kind of supply led growth, um, and that gives us a little bit more uh, scope on the on the inflation side um, to to sort of pull back from from the idea of inflation immediately picking up just because demand is is remaining strong. So I would I would push back against the idea that it, it's entirely supply led growth. I think a, a better characterization than than what the, the kind of the Fed narrative um, of supply led growth is is actually that it's it's quite clearly demand led growth, but that supply is responding. Um, and and if supply is responding, then inflation will will um, find it hard to to, to pick up again, um, or at least there's some kind of a cap on 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 inflation in the aggregate. Um, and so when we're looking at the the, the 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 January CPI report coming through and when we're seeing that those there are parts of it that are still hot, I'm still comfortable in kind of looking at this and looking at sort of the different components of the basket and saying, well, that's a bit idiosyncratic and that's a bit idiosyncratic. Um, 
which I wouldn't be if I was worried that there was a more kind of macro uh, shift towards towards um, towards reflation in 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 the in the U.S. case. And so that all tells us that if if inflation remains relatively well contained, perhaps disinflation is is kind of coming towards its close in the U.S. case, not in Europe, but in the U.S. case. Um, then then the Fed still has the potential to to cut rates this year, and I, I do think that will make things easier for the for the Bank of Japan. Mm. And Freya, speaking of inflation, we have a major economy <laughs> on the globe in a deflationary spiral right now, it seems, at least from the official figures in China. What do you make of the situation in China? It's been very tricky to find a guest on the Macro Sunday podcast willing to say something positive around the cycle in China at, at, at this moment in time. Are there any positives to say around China right now? Um... Oh dear, I want to be that person that can help you out there, but I just can't. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, I, for me, in terms of the short term, uh, it's very hard to see China growing above five percent in nominal terms this year, and that's in nominal terms. Uh, and that's obviously the authorities won't report that, but that will probably be the reality on the ground. Mm. Um, and that's because it's a banking-centric economy. And M1 growth uh, fails to get off the ground. Um, and, and if you don't have M1 growth picking up, which we still don't, maybe kind of later in the year that will, will start to come through, then, um, then you won't have nominal GDP growth picking up. And that's the sort of the, the, the cyclical aspect, the, the, the heart of this kind of debt deflation dynamic um, that, that we see coming through in the Chinese inflation data at this stage. Um, it's a it's a situation in which uh, they're unable to generate liquidity, and when they do generate liquidity, it's immediately used to pay down debt, and that's why M1 growth is 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 not picking up. And there's a very clear break around kind of the 2019 era when a lot was changing in terms of how they operated monetary policy, but that probably is when the economy really reached that stage of of, of debt saturation. Um, and at that point, there's a very clear break in the charts between the, the, the ability to, to generate liquidity growth by cutting interest rates. So they're already at that um, already at that stage of, of um, kind of debt deflation dynamics kicking in. Um, and I don't see anything in the stimulus so far. And I won't see anything in the stimulus until there's a significant bank recapitalization that um, that 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 really tells me that they're that they're kind of going to get the economy off the ground. Certainly not this year. So this lack of M1 growth, this continued turbulence in the banking system, how much of that is directly linked to the ongoing malaise within the real estate sector? Is the real estate sector simply the problem that they have to solve to get rid of this situation? I think so. So debt isn't only in the real estate um, sector. It's 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 more broad than that. But that's clearly sort of the the eye of the storm. Um, So yeah, they, they they need to solve that problem among others in order to to to, to get the economy um, to a more stable kind of growth path that's that's uh, that's that's allowing some form of, of recovery. And that's just not what we see. Um, we see kind of the whitelisted projects for which um, developers can apply to to restart the stalled projects um, with with finance from from state controlled entities. There have been more than 3,200 applications for for that um, approved by local government, but they're not actually approved. Uh, in fact, so far only 83 of that 3,200 have been have been approved for, for for financing. 
Um, and this is in a, a country where the the large developers' sales volumes dropped about 17% last year. Um, and we don't know what's going on with property prices because they're not publishing the data, but we do know that state-owned developers' uh, share prices are dropping. Um, for instance, Coley dropped 40% last year. Um, so there's something very serious going on um, with regards to, to the decline in, in property prices. Uh, and, and that's the, the, the result of that is that there needs to be a, a wholesale recapitalization of, of the banking system. Um, and there probably needs to be something along the lines of, of QE alongside that, which they can't call QE because they just spent the past 10 years lambasting um, developed market central bankers for, for doing this stupid QE, which increases inequality and doesn't help the real economy. Um, but that's what they, they would have to do in that type of a, of a debt deflation dynamic. I, I got asked a, a, a good question about this from a question that got me thinking from, from a client recently um, about what, why, how will markets respond if they do kind of go down that route of, of doing QE? They don't call it QE, but they do something that is, is clearly kind of QE-like. How will markets respond and, and why would it not just be the same as, as what happened in the 2010s in, in the US? Because we all know that that, that didn't work for the real economy, um, but it did work for asset prices. Mm. So can we be, is there some hope there? I'm trying to, to, to answer your question on the, on the hope <laughs> side there. Um, is there some hope there that it might work for, for, um, for, uh, for, for, for Chinese asset prices? Um, and unfortunately, I, I have to dash those hopes as soon as that as I as I raise them because uh, it, I think a better parallel would be what happened in Japan in the in the in the mid nineties and, and and coming past the the peak in private sector debt to GDP in in, in Japan because it, the the critical thing that's missing in the Chinese case and what was missing in the in the Japanese case uh, that that allowed. The U.S. Uh, asset prices to, to to rebound in the 2010s case. Um, the critical thing that's missing is that there's there's no acceptance of defaults and there's no uh, there's no top. There's nothing that really turns the, the 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 market around. So you just have this situation where there's a perpetual need to um, to to run surpluses, to run private sector surpluses, uh, and the government deficit is a reflection of that. They probably need to run a larger current account surplus, but they can't because they can't continue to dump their electric vehicles on Germany and they can't continue to, to, to dump their electric vehicles on the US. And, and so um, there's there's no real kind of outlet there other than just government deficit offsetting private sector surpluses. What happened in, in Japan in the in the mid 90s, in the late 90s, um, was was it was the banks that were buying the, the government debt. And so that creates liquidity. It drives down velocity. Velocity is my favorite thing. <laughs> it drives down velocity, um, but it, it doesn't. It doesn't actually produce any response in the in the real economy. That liquidity is sort of like null liquidity that is created as a result of a deficiency of of demand in in the in the real economy and in the private sector. Um, so, liquidity is being created, but it's not the type of liquidity that's going to help out either the real economy or asset prices we've also had a lot of questions from uh, from clients of ours and also uh, listeners to this podcast on the sort of 
attractiveness of the Chinese equity market given current valuations. Um, I think as of this week, um, if I uh, was the sole owner of NVIDIA, I could sell NVIDIA and buy China basically um, <laughs> from, from that same amount of, of, of dollars, uh, which is kind of crazy uh, if you look at it. Um, but Freya, do you have like a checklist in mind of, of initiatives that the Chinese authorities could could take to make you more comfortable around the structural outlook for China? What what would be the catalyst to turn more upbeat on the Chinese outlook, also from an investment perspective? Uh, greater defaults uh, mm. and recapitalization of the banking system um, mm. in a sort of a, a big bang type of a way rather than a sort of a we're fighting fires as they come type of a way. Um, I think the key thing that keeps China as a as a macro economy in um, in the middle income trap is the lack of returns on wealth mm. and the Chinese solution to uh, to the oversupply that has driven down returns over the course of its development so far is to redirect that excess of savings that causes the oversupply to solve oversupply with fresh oversupply of, in this case, electric vehicles. Um, and so the the returns, you know, it's better for the environment. Don't get me wrong. That's much, much better, at least initially from for, for, for the Chinese environment, let's say. Um, but it doesn't help with generating returns. If you look at the structure of the Chinese economy, the deficiency of, of income in the household sector, that's the, the root cause of the, the, the lack of private consumption led growth. Um, that deficiency of income is about deficiency of returns on wealth. It's not so much about compensation of, of employees anymore. In fact, compensation of employees is 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 reasonably high as a percentage of, of disposable income, um, kind of parallel to, to what we see in, in the US. So it's the financial repression that that stops China from, from transitioning. So while it looks great for like the, the, the individual kind of productivity of those firms in terms of labor productivity that have had this massive capital injection mm. Um, into into those kind of green sectors that are picked by the the Chinese Communist Party, it doesn't help with the overall economy, um, with with kind of redirecting uh, income towards the household sector so that you get private consumption led growth. And until you get that, the whole economy has to continue to deflate, and unfortunately, that means asset prices as well. Yeah, I think I share your sentiment uh, around China and. Um wasn't this week that we found someone willing to say that China is a good structural case in this uh, podcast. Freya Beamish, it was a pleasure hosting you uh, here at the Macro Sunday podcast. I hope Thank to you. be uh, able to invite you back uh, during the year for another update on uh, the Asian macro momentum because it's been certainly undercovered here uh, in the Macro Sunday podcast. Freya Beamish, thank you for joining us. Thank you. We're back in the studio, Mikkel. Um <laughs> quite the dire outlook for China, if Freya's right, um, but also very interesting to, to hear her thoughts on why Japan is, is structurally moving towards a better regime, I'd mm. say. Uh, from 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 a uh, uh, from an economic perspective, Mikkel, um, we've obviously focused a lot on China, uh, both politically and, and uh, economically, over the past year or so. They still struggle to get things going. Absolutely, and uh, I, I still think at the core of all this is is the 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 Chinese struggle to adjust their mindset and their political apparatus to 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 um, instead of simply producing stuff uh, with all the cheap labor they've had, to to switch to basically um, 
encourage consumer confidence. Uh, they're not really used to, they, they usually, they didn't really care about the internal consumers. They were con- concerned about consumer confidence in Europe and the US because they were taking, they were buying all the stuff. But but now they need to, to, to cater to the internal market to to keep, especially to, to, to keep the real estate market going as well. And, and that is a whole other political mindset uh, and probably involves a lot more uh, fiscal stimulus either on the, uh, the central government level and national level or on sub-national level levels uh, um, uh, in China. So, so, so I think that that is going to be the uh, the overall narrative for China for the coming decades to increase public spending, to in, in, increase uh, confidence within within the consumer class and the, 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 the consuming middle class, basically, in China. And Mikkel, currently we are long China by proxy, I'd say, yeah. in our portfolio. Uh, we bought copper a couple of weeks ago and... Um, we're currently a couple of percentage points in, in the money. Um, we prefer to belong China via proxy instead mm. of taking the uh, on-ground risk. Um, and the long copper bet basically also rhymes with a cyclical reacceleration. And interestingly, we we actually see the f- very first signs now of improving forward-looking indicators in Germany. Take a look at uh, truck toll mileage uh, or the uh, electricity consumptions on, uh, on a daily basis. Some, two of our uh, now costs on, on, on trends in Germany, they're improving now um, from abysmal levels, but they're improving. Uh, that's essentially what growth is made of. Um, there are also, I'd say, very early signs of improving forward-looking indicators from China. Um, not that it will be a big party, but... I mean, the sequential change is positive. And then the forward-looking indicators uh, in the US economy remain strong. So point being here that we actually have um, three of the major engines globally moving in a positive direction from a sequential perspective. And that is typically something that goes hand in hand with this cyclical repricing of asset markets. We made a major study um, for clients on Saturday where we basically look at all asset classes relative to the economic cycle to try and um, figure out whether the cyclical repricing has been made or not uh, across asset classes. Uh, and th- there are a few very interesting highlights. Um, first of all, if we look at the equity space, the sector with the highest beta to a cyclical repricing is the materials sector. Um, it's got a beta of two, um, meaning that for every uh, one percentage point uh, repricing of the cycle, we should expect to see 2% gains in the materials sector. If we take the forward-looking indicators um, and calculate the implied yearly change in materials based on that, it should have been up by roughly 24% uh, by now. Uh, so there's a gap relative to what we've seen of, of more than 20%. It looks very cheap materials and, and it, it's not bought into uh, from a positioning perspective either. You can see that entire beta study and uh, also look at the positioning in, in various equity sectors in that study uh, on our webpage um, released on Saturday. If we look at the FX space, um, cheapest currencies out there, or the, the Japanese yen, the Norwegian crown, and the Aussie dollar, uh, if the cyclical comeback uh, actually gathers pace. We're currently short um, Swiss franc versus the Japanese yen ourselves. 
um, in anticipation of a narrowing of the rate spread between the two central banks, but also in, in, in anticipation of Freya Beamish actually being right that Bank of Japan holds a golden opportunity to get, to get out of, of negative interest rate uh, policy territory already by, by early uh, 24 uh, in the fiscal year in Japan in April. Mikkel, um loads of stuff uh, yeah, <laughs> on, on, on ongoing in, in macro and, and geopolitics. Um, when we look at geopolitics in the week ahead, I'll, I'll uh, allow you to to um, conclude the program with with comments on that. Uh, any signs of negotiations ongoing in the week ahead in in Gaza? Or, or yes, the, yeah. yes, absolutely. I mean, the U.S. is working extremely hard on this. Joe Biden has even raised it to his own level, saying that he's working day and night to find a solution. So, uh, so I definitely expect that. Um, that's uh, that is the main main topic right now, since it is a driver for so many of the of the of the risks uh, affecting both the equity markets, commodities, and everything. So that that is very much the focus. Uh, one final note: uh, we're beginning to hear some whispers around. Obviously, we're based in Denmark, uh, which is a huge wind energy producing country, windmill producing country. When rates begins to 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 drop or, or be 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 lower in Europe, one of the main sectors benefiting from that will be windmills. Yeah. Uh, European countries are going to start building windmills, solar farms, all that. Uh, once rates start go down, especially if energy prices and gas prices remain high, mm. uh, it, it's basically a, a combination of these factors will make certain business cases make sense. And with this, mm. when these business cases make sense, governments are going to invest in them, um, especially within, within the European Union. Uh, and that, by proxy, points at China because China's producing a lot of these materials the, the components or even the entire windmills and solar panels so that was just to 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 add on your China uh, the, the the China bit there. yeah and it rhymes well with our long copper Except, position yeah. as well um interesting to see whether we're right that we'll get an inflation flare-up a cyclical repricing in a positive sense mm -hmm. so basically a positive acceleration in um, the global economy, paired with uh, further additions of dollar liquidity, um, tricky times in global macro. Uh, but for now, it seems like inflation is back. Um, and go have a look at my very cocky article stating that there is no chance of getting um, US inflation back to 2%. In this cycle, it's uh, found on stenoresearch.com. We'll put a link in the show notes directly to the article. Remember that you can uh, try us out 14 days for free. My name is Andreas Steno. It was a pleasure hosting you, Mikkel Rosenwald, in Thank this you. edition of Macro Sunday. We'll be back again next Sunday with more from the global macro landscape. Sometimes it may be good, sometimes it may be shit.